Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Chuck Colson once said that progress isn't always discovering something new. Sometimes it's rediscovering an eternal forgotten truth. Progress isn't always discovering something new. Sometimes it's rediscovering an eternal forgotten truth. We've been in this series called The Long Way Home. We've been walking with the Israelites as they've moved towards the land of promise that God uh, is giving to them. And along the way, I think, gaining more than they realize, because it's not just about a land that they're going to, but it's about the presence of God in their lives and the character that he seeks to develop in his people. And today, we're going to take a little bit step back. Last time, we got to the point where uh, we were looking at Joshua and Caleb and them as they were peeking into the promised land and trying to understand exactly how they were going to do what God has called them to do. One step back was when God was forming the tabernacle, as we looked at, and forming the priesthood. And we're going to take a look at something that happened in the book of Leviticus. You find Leviticus between Exodus. You remember Exodus means basically a departure. We get the word exit from it, right? Exodus was the original word. And then uh, the book of Numbers, which is called that because they were numbering the Israelites in the different camps. The book of Leviticus is named that because it is named after one of the 12 sons of Jacob who had a tribe. His name was Levi. And Levi was the son from which the priesthood would come. Aaron was a descendant of Levi, and so were his sons. And they would form the priesthood in Israel. And that's why the book is called Leviticus. So what you see in the book is a lot of real exciting stuff. (laughs) It's all of these laws, these regulations, festivals they're going to hold, different offerings or sacrifices that they would make. And so you find a burnt offering, a grain offering, a fellowship offering, sin offering, guilt offering, a lot of offerings. Okay, to God. And a lot of this stuff is kind of a little bit dry to us, but there's some key points in the book of Leviticus that if you miss this, you'll miss kind of the whole thing. And that is at least two things that you want to grab in the midst of all that. This is the first thing. The first thing in the point of the book of Leviticus is holiness. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, God says, Be holy, for I am holy. I'm the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt, your exodus, to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am am holy. That's the motivator. I am holy, God says. And the second thing you'll see is this holiness comes through sacrifice. These are both key points that we're going to go into in a little bit. Uh, We see this statement in Leviticus 17, verse 11, where God tells them the life of the body is in its blood. I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It's the blood given in exchange for a life 
that makes purification possible. So you see, God has this standard. He calls it holiness. We're going to talk about what that is in a minute and how we often misunderstand it. But he says the means to get there is not your works or things you might do, but it's actually a sacrifice, a life given in exchange for yours because the blood is the life. And when that exchange is given on the altar, you are set free and set on a path towards this walk with me. And so we see the priesthood do begin to actuate what God has asked them to do to make this intercession, to call the people to this walk with the holy God. And we see Aaron and his sons ordained in the book of Leviticus. We see them begin to make their offerings. And then we have this one moment when they first go into this, they make all the offerings before God, all the sacrifices. And then in Leviticus chapter 9, we see this amazing moment. They're all standing around there and we read, fire came out from the presence of the Lord. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions. God was in agreement with this, and he sent the fire. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy, and they fell face down. When God intercepts you directly, when you know you're in the center of his will, it fills you with joy. It fills you with purpose. It fills you with a sense of being centered. Of course, when you don't, when you're not in the will of God, or you're trying to do it by a different will, everything changes. And that's exactly what we see in the very next chapter in Leviticus 10. We see this through two of Aaron's sons, part of the priesthood. Their names are Nadab and Abihu. Say that with me. Nadab and Abihu. Gesundheit. I had to do it. I feel no offense to Abihu, but doesn't it sound that way? Okay. I don't think you'll hold it against me. His sons Nadab and Abihu, and we read this in Leviticus 10. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu put coals of fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. They're preparing for priestly duties, it looked like. But then we're told, in this way, they disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire, different than he had commanded. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, I'll display my holiness. He's holy. Through those who come near me, I will display my glory before all the people. And Aaron was silent. A very different reaction when we're not in the center of the will of God. A very different result. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, my first thing I'm thinking is, I want to be careful the next time I fire up my grill at home. Right? I mean, what does this mean? Wrong kind of fire. Well, there's more to it than that, obviously. It's not just about actions, but they make no mistake, they were playing with fire here. And I wonder today if we are too. You look at the very things that are happening and all the things going wrong in the world today, and you wonder, how much is it because we are all playing with fire? So what's going on here? What happened here? And how does it apply to us? Because if we think this is just for a couple of priests back in the Old Testament, and that really doesn't apply to anything today, I would encourage you and and warn you to read Acts chapter 5 in the New Testament about two other people whose names were Ananias and Sapphira and what happened to them when they played with fire. God is a loving God, but he's a holy God, and he's not one to be trifled with. And so what can we learn from this? Well, the context here, Nadab and Abihu, they had a legacy of amazing spiritual experience. These were not just a couple of clueless people that walked in and maybe did the wrong thing in the wrong moment. They saw firsthand the miracles that God did in bringing Israel out of Egypt. They heard the voice of God. They saw the fire, the lightning, the smoke. They felt the thunder and the earthquake with the rest of the nation at Mount Sinai. They went up with Moses 
Aaron and 70 other elders, they were there with a special meeting with God on Mount Sinai. You can read it in Exodus 24. And, and, if, and if that's not enough, every single day as they camped, do you remember a few weeks ago, put pictures up here about the different camps around the tabernacle and all the tribes were there. If you looked really close, a careful observer will notice that as you read those names, you see 12. Jacob had 12 sons. But actually, Joseph doesn't have a camp there. Two of his sons did, Ephraim and Manasseh. So now that should be 13. But there wasn't 13. There was only, still only 12. Why? Because Levi didn't have a camp around the tabernacle. The tribe of Levi camped right next to the tabernacle. They were the priests. They were drawn in even closer. It's interesting that today, those who are in faith in Christ are called a royal priesthood. So who does this apply to? They were the closest you could get daily living to the presence of God. All of this they had, they were in the know, they had ringside seats, you know? And sometimes that's a benefit. You know, back in the days when we didn't see cardboard faces, you know, at the, uh, at the basketball and baseball games, maybe those days will <laughs> disappear, but for now, that's the way it is. But back in those days before, people sat in the, in the rows, but the closer you got to the field, the, the, the better your seats were, right? The more favored of a position you had. And it was like they were right there front row, but usually those seats are, tend to be for the CEOs, right? And the big shots, at least nowadays. Well, they were there, right there with the CEO. They had the front row seats. And then they go and they choose to offer a sacrifice in their own way, contrary to what God had asked them to do. You know, when you're kind of down the chain, lower at the corporation, and you mess something up, you might get a little reprimanded, something on your, on your report, but things might go on. But if you're working for the CEO and you do a direct disobeyment of his command, what do you think happens? You're out of there. And that's the position they found themselves in when they offered this wrong kind of fire. What, is, what does that mean, wrong kind of fire? Uh, we, we've, at times through the years, we've got these little packets of crystals. Anybody ever seen these things? They're called Mystic Flame, or there's a couple different manufacturers. And you throw this packet into, into a, a campfire, and the, the minerals kind of light on fire, and they turn the fire blue and green. It's really kind of cool. You know, you shouldn't cook marshmallows over it, but it's fun to watch. And they're harmless, you know, harmless uh, uh, minerals. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about some different color fire or starting a fire in a different way. What we're talking about is at least one of two things, if not both. Another word that we could use there for wrong kind of fire would be they offered a profane fire, a profane fire, a desacred desacred fire. It wasn't sacred. But profane captures something, and we see maybe the clue to this a few verses later. In Leviticus 10, verse 9, The Lord says to Aaron in in, in the priesthood, you and your descendants must never drink wine or any other alcoholic drink before going into the tabernacle. If you do, you will die. This is a permanent law for you, and it must be observed from generation to generation. I hope you had orange juice with breakfast this morning. That's all I'm going to say. But the application here, really, we need to understand what's going on. If this was applied to them, and if they had actually been drinking before they went in there, rather than give themselves to the Spirit of God, they gave themselves to these unnatural spirits. They lost control of themselves before they went in there and tried to do what they did out of a pure passion with no connection to God. And that's the problem. And I'll tell you the truth, that doesn't sound too unlike today. God has a lot of laws 
in Scripture about warning us against things like drunkenness, the profane use of our bodies, the profane use of our minds. And yet, it doesn't seem, the, the, the culture just doesn't seem to, to care anymore. I mean, drunkenness has been abound. We've had the legalization increasingly of marijuana. Where marijuana, we, I, If I miss my guess, uh, I think recently a state approved the legalized use of heroin and methamphetamine. We're giving ourselves over to these things as though it won't cost us anything. In fact, I've seen in the last couple of years, a couple of major universities have published papers in which people are arguing that prostitution should be legalized. I mean, what's it going to hurt, right? If all these other things are legal, why can't we legalize that? The article actually said if we accept every other form outside of marriage of sexual use, okay, then why wouldn't this be? You see the argument? So that's offered that way. Meanwhile, there's no understanding of, of articles in psychology today saying that, uh, that one article was, was titled, Do Women Want to Be Objectified? And it said decades of research have documented the many ways that objectification is extremely harmful. So we have stuff coming out like that saying, don't objectify people. They shouldn't be sold for money. Okay? And then other ones over here saying, hey, let's just do it because what's the harm? We've lost our way. We've lost our way. And we see more than that. We see anger. We see rampant passion. We, we, we see situations, I believe, today in which there is no more civil discourse. There's no more talking. There's no more understanding or seeking to be understood. It's just we're driven by more and more our base passions. Something is out of joint. The, the world is playing with fire. Are we? Because God calls his people first and foremost, to something. So what are we doing in our lives with these things? The second issue, though, I believe that was part of the issue, this profane, approaching God in this profane way, but I think another part of it was that you could interpret this word as an unauthorized use of fire, an unauthorized use of fire. Okay, now remember, they had just seen a sacrifice on the altar when it was done appropriately and with reverence and respect to God. They had seen it consumed by God himself. Remember, we just read that. God sent a fire and consumed it, and that's what made it sacred. But Nadab and Abihu offered a fire of their own making. They felt they should offer the fire that should consume the sacrifice. Perhaps they thought all fire was the same. Perhaps they were motivated by pride, ambition, jealousy. I don't know. Again, doesn't sound unlike much of what we see today. But whatever the reason, they thought all fire was the same, but all fire isn't the same. And there's a huge difference between a fire that's kindled by God and a fire that's kindled by men and women. This wasn't how the Lord commanded it. They did it, in other words, in their own authority. How do we approach God today? I can tell you what I see in large part in the culture. We approach God now on our own terms. And if anyone dares claim what God's terms are, rest assured it won't be long before you are called a hater, a bigot, evil, or a host of other things. That's the cultural direction right now. But we have to start with the people of God, and we have to ask ourselves, when do we approach God on our terms? When do we feel even a hint of self-righteousness in our faith, 
and how we act it out and how we view others in the church or outside. Because if we do, if we're carrying even a hint of self-righteousness, we're playing with fire. You see, what's missing today is a couple of things, and I believe this is a time, unlike probably any other we've seen, and as far back as any of us can remember, that the church is being called to rediscover an eternal and largely almost forgotten truth. We've got to get back to the core, and we have to be defined as the people of God by what those things are. And I believe, first, it begins with the holiness of God. And it also includes the gospel message. The first thing is the holiness of God. We've got to get this right. There was a story one time of, I think it was in the 1960s, there was a soccer player, Bobby Moore, who uh, was going to be receiving um, the World Cup from Queen Elizabeth personally. And so he, uh, an interviewer later had asked him to describe, you know, how was the experience, how did it feel? And this is what he said. He talked about how terrified he was as he approached Her Majesty because he noticed she was wearing white gloves while his hand, which would soon, soon shake the queen's, was dirty, had some dirt and mud on it. And so as the, as the captain was walking along the balcony nearing her, the closer and closer he got, he kept, people kept seeing him wipe his hands on his shorts and he was wiping his hands on a velvet cloth in front of the royal box. I mean, anything he could touch, he was trying to wipe his hands off before he got to her because in his mind, it's just the sheer horror of thinking, what do, happens here when I extend my dirty, grubby hand and this perfectly clean hand of the queen grasps it and her glove comes back stained with dirt and mud? He was terrified over that prospect. And, of course, the whole idea is if he was worried about approaching a queen with muddy hands, how much more horrified should we be at the prospect of approaching a holy God with anything like that? Isaiah chapter 6 gives us a sense of what just being in the presence of God briefly for a moment, would do to us when we sense his holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. We read that as Isaiah looks up in this moment and he gets a brief glimpse of God on his throne and he sees these angel creatures, these seraph, angel seraph creatures, which are creatures that are just terrifying and awesome in their beauty and in their majesty. And he sees them flying around uh, the throne and we see it say to us, angel seraphs, Hovered above him, that's the Lord, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. They can't bear to look at him. The high angels can't bear to look at him. They covered two of their feet with, the other, with two other wings. They can't bear to walk where he treads. And then with two, they flew. And they called back and forth to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of the angel armies. His bright glory fills the whole earth. Holy, holy, holy. They're still saying that today. Holy, holy, holy. If we had a glimpse of this, that's what we would be hearing. It's a non-ending song because his bright glory fills the whole earth. You see, this is part of where I think we get it wrong. I know I have. At times, I hear that word holy, and I think we either think one of two things. I think the world sometimes thinks holy means self-righteous, you know? Stick up your nose better than the next person, right? I'm better than you. 
So we either hear that, which it can be, or we hear just simply holy means better than the next person or better than the next situation. My hands aren't that dirty. Okay, so I'm getting more holy the more clean my hands are, right? That's kind of our sense of holiness, these degrees of being better. And so you almost think of that story. You know, this guy's hands were a little dirty. The queen's were completely white. But if he washed enough, he would be more confident now to walk up and shake her hand. And that is an inadequate picture. Because this is not, approaching the holiness of God is not like muddy hands versus white gloves. It's more like muddy hands trying to touch the sun. They're evaporated. They're completely destroyed and vaporized in that moment. Deuteronomy 4 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And Isaiah sees this, and he is literally unraveled. He says, Woe to me. The, the, the words, you can't even grab the depth of the, of the passion and the pathos in those words. He says, Woe to me. Uh, judgment to me. Judgment to me, I am ruined. That's it. I'm going to dissolve. He's completely lost. He doesn't have a basis by which he can exist anymore. He has now approached and touched something or seen, even seen something that is wholly different. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Wholly different. Not a matter of degrees, but wholly different. It's, it's, it's muddy hands trying to touch the surface of the sun. And he would have been burned right up except for the angel who through a burning process absolved him of his sin. It was the only way in which he could stand and even look at God. I think we miss this today. I think as a people we have become arrogant because we don't understand this anymore. I think the world certainly has because most people approach God on their terms. Most people, I believe, think God has something to prove to them. And we have lost this. This is why Aaron was silent. He had no argument back to what had happened. Many people, I believe, think they're going to give God a piece of their mind one day, but we are going to be silenced before a holy God. And so, will we play with fire in this way? Will we just diminish in our own hearts the holiness of God? Will we become so righteous in regards to everything unrighteous going on in the world that we realize how white our gloves are compared to the muddiness of the rest of the hands around us? And will we forget that those hands cannot touch the surface of the sun? Or will we be broken in this day and age before a holy God? It's the house of God. It's the people of God that are going to be called to this. Don't wait for anything around you to be called to it. That's not our, our role. That's not what we're called to. Will we be broken before this? And I believe the second thing that goes with the holiness of God is the gospel message. You know, lest we forget, as a church, we are called to share the hope of the gospel. That is why we meet. We meet because we love each other. We meet because we fellowship. We meet because of community. We meet because of serving others in love. All of that actually is a part of the character that God wants to develop in us. But let's not forget in the midst of doing all that that there's a gospel message and it's the only thing that transforms the world. It's, on, it's the only thing that saves a wayward heart. It's the only thing that can turn anger into love. It's the only thing that can turn division into unity. The only thing, no matter what we hear out there right now. There is nothing 
that is going to bring unity and love and hope, but the gospel message. Everything else will continue to hate, divide, and destroy. So what are we called to? I just want to give that to you right now. I mean, it's some people call this, there's different ways, of course. There's John 3.16. Yeah, we can hold it up at the football game the next time they open. Okay, that's okay. But there's another one that's called the Romans Road, and I just want to spend our remaining minutes and just lay this out for you. It's out of the book of Romans, and we see this is part, to me, this is the holy sacrifice. This is the pure sacrifice we offer to God, is, is to understand, appropriate this, even daily by faith, and share it as best we can to the world around us. Romans 3.23, it begins, it says, Everyone has sinned. No one measures up to God's glory. Another translation says, No one measures up to the shining greatness of God. What can withstand the surface of the sun? doesn't matter if your hands are stained a little or a lot. This is not, holiness is not self-righteousness. It's not thinking I'm holier than thou. That's to miss the point. It's to approach with humility and in a state of absolute unraveling a holy God who can change you. And nothing else defines it. And that's why this culture today of self-justification is playing with fire. You see groups of people pointing stained, muddy fingers at each other, pointing out the evil in the other groups of people, when it's Jesus that tells us to start by pointing the finger at ourselves, point it at the evil in our own hearts, and know that God is a consuming fire. And so it begins there. The next step of the gospel is the wages of sin is death. The world plays with fire. The world questions the fairness of God when he says the wages of your sin is eternal death and separation from me. It's not a popular thing to say anymore. You will be questioned. You will be shadowed down. You will be called a hater. And yet what's funny, again, is the, is the, the understanding of this is right in front of our faces, but we've begun to lose it. There was a middle school pastor outlined it this way. He said, suppose a middle school student punches another student in class. What happens? Students given detention. Suppose in detention, the boy punches the teacher. What happens? Well, then the student gets suspended. Suppose on the way home, the same boy punches a policeman. What happens? Finds himself in jail. Suppose some years later, the same boy's in a crowd wanting to see the president. And as the president passes by, he lunges forward to punch him. What happens? He is shot dead by the secret police. In every case, the crime is precisely the same, but the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. And so what is the severity of our crime against a holy God? What does that sin earn us? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the only hope. It's the only right sacrifice. And because God is holy and loving, he did this. God presented Christ. You see, he presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God did it. God provided the fire. God provided the sacrifice. It's only our job to trust in that. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And finally, Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and simply believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the Jesus who covered us 
and that mud transferred onto his body. And as the surface of the sun touched him, he was burned and consumed. And when that was done, it left us clean and white. Do we fully grasp what a holy God has done? The holy God upon a cross, such searing pain, such tragic loss. He died for me. Can it be that I am changed by so great a cost? We as the church have to get back to the holiness of God in our lives, the brokenness before him, and the gospel message to live it and to share it. There is no other hope for this world. Do we understand this? Do we understand the holiness of God? These are strange times. I don't say that because of recent times. I say that because of decades in which I believe these times have come upon us. In strange times when strange fire is offered and when progress increasingly means playing with fire, what will we be? Father, remind us of your holiness. Let us break before it again as your church. Help us, God, to have the courage to stand with truth to share the gospel message to the world around us, no matter what the reaction might be. Help us to do it with the grace and the humility of one who remembers the holiness of God that broke us and the gospel that saved us. We pray these things, Lord, because it's the only hope of the world. In Jesus' name.